Hi, this is Seth Mosley, and this is the Made It in Music Podcast, show 167. Welcome to the podcast, where we bring you tools and resources to help you go full-time in music and to stay in. The music business is a roller coaster ride, changing faster than any of us can pay attention to. We all need a competitive edge to stay ahead and to stay successful. What's working, what isn't, and what's coming? That's exactly what this show is all about. Back again with Full Circle Music, the Made It in Music podcast. What's up? Seth Mosley here. We're on the Made It Music podcast, and today we've got Jody Williams. I'm going to intro him here in just a second, but it is an episode that you're not going to want to miss. Stick around all the way to the end. This guy is a music industry veteran, has been been around the block and is doing a lot of stuff here. But before we jump in, wanted to let you know about something super awesome that we do here at Full Circle Music through Bridge House, which is our partner production company. We offer productional, professional production services for demos and masters. And I want to let you know, so if this sounds like something you're interested in, you should definitely contact support at fullcirclemusic.com if you have a project that you would like to have professional production for. All right, today our guest is Jody Williams. Jody is a music industry veteran. He's a former VP of creative at performing rights organization BMI, where he worked for over 14 years. Is that, is that correct? 14? Yeah, 25 total. 25, 25 I wor- total. I worked there three different times, so, so the last stint was 14. So 25 total. Recently, Jody's moved on to Jody Williams Songs, which is a joint publishing venture with Warner Chapel Music Nashville, where they've signed uh, writers and artists like Ashley McBride, Nathan Chapman, Jeremy Spillman, Greg Bates, and Pat McLaughlin. And in his career, his love for music publishing was always apparent. Between his stints at working at BMI, Jody Williams um, was drawn into the publishing world as president of the Nashville division of MCA Music Publishing, among many other publishing opportunities. They thrived under his leadership, emerging as one of the Nashville's most awarded publishers, and that's not all. Jody also serves on the boards of the Country Music Association, the CMA, and is a trustee on the Country Music Hall of Fame. And that's just the tip of the iceberg for Jody. So I'm so ready to learn from Jody and his many years of experience. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Yeah. Did I get all that right? You did. Okay. Very, very cool. So as a Nashville native, the music biz was kind of right in front of your eyes growing up. Um, What inspired you to kind of jump in and become a part of it? Um, I think... um uh, my next door neighbor was a, is a was a guy, and he's still a dear dear friend, Billy Crane. Mm. Um, uh, he was my next door neighbor. He's a year older than me, and his big brother was always in bands, and we just kind of wanted to be like Tommy Crane, who who was his big brother. And so uh, we this was in grade school. This was like like fifth fifth and sixth grade. Mm. Uh, we played little combos, and you know just parties for our friends and that type of thing. Yeah. So f- from that point forward, I, I really knew that that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know how, what form it would take. I really wanted to be a songwriter and a guitar player in somebody's band. Mm-hmm. That that appealed to me all the way through um, my first year of college, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, and then things turned. So, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. So tell us about, um, you know, you mentioned that you were kind of, have had multiple stints at BMI. Tell us about your your time there. Well, I um, uh, I went to school at the University of Denver for one year, and um, 
school was really never my thing. I got in a bluegrass band out there, wanted to come back to Nashville and open a record store. I'd been working for a company called uh, uh, Peaches Records, mm. which was a big chain back in the mid-70s through, through probably the early 80s. And they would take uh, like big grocery stores, supermarkets, and they would be record stores. Mm. So I wanted to come back and open up a like a retail you know record store at that time. My dad, uh, who is very entrepreneurial, was all about it, you know. But he said, you know, we don't really know anything about the music business, but you know, you know, you know Francis because you went to to school with David and Donnie Preston, her sons. They were really good friends, so I would hang out at the Preston's house when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my dad suggested that I go talk to Francis just to get some advice. So I did, and I went and saw uh, Mrs. Preston uh, at her office. And I was 20, 20 years old. And, um, and basically, you know, she suggested that uh, we're, we're about to go into a recession. People don't buy as much in a recession, especially music. They're going to buy food before they buy music. You should pr- probably wait wait on this. I mean, there's probably a better time to start a business mm. like this. And by the way, you know, you could intern here. We'll, we'll, we, we pay our interns, and you can sort of like have a paid internship here. And I thought... Well, that's not really what I want to do, but I said, but thank you, and I'll, I'll let you know. So I went back, and, and, and you know, when I left there, I was, I was going back to where I, I, I was living, and I thought on the way back to there, I thought, you know, this was probably a setup. Mm. You know, this was probably my dad, you know, uh, maybe didn't really want to do this, but wanted to see me learn and all that. Sure. So... Um, I, I did. I did take her advice, and I did go to work in the mailroom as a really as an employee. It wasn't an internship at all. It was. It turned out to be a just a entry level position in the mailroom. Wow. So, and I worked there for for uh, almost two years like mm-hmm. that, and it was there that I learned. I, I, I would always read my liner notes, and I, I knew what BMI and ASCAP did, um, and, but I was just I just working at the record store. I just became more curious about all the backroom part of the music business. Sure. And and at BMI, you quickly learn what publishing's all about. You quickly learn about the income stream and who gets that money and how songwriters can leverage portions of their publisher share mm-hmm. while holding on to their writer's share. And all, you know, you learn yeah. that really quickly there. And, and learn who all these people are in the fine print on these album jackets. Mm-hmm. So... I, um, you know, I, back in those days, I, I, I was still writing songs and I was uh, playing dobro in a couple of bands and um, doing demos and uh, played on a few demo sessions and all that type of thing. But when I saw what I saw the path of publishing, I thought that's probably where I need to go. Mm-hmm. So when I realized that, um, what had happened, you know, since I got back from Denver was that my sister, my older sister, ended up marrying Tommy Crane, Mm -hmm. my best friend's big brother that we were trying to emulate in our (laughs) bands. So Tommy had the good fortune of being selected by Charlie Daniels as his new lead guitar player. And this was right before Charlie, this was like three, two or three years before 
devil went down to Georgia. Wow. Okay. So this, so, so I met, you know, I was really great friends with Tommy. Now Tommy's my brother-in-law. Tommy introduces me to Charlie and Charlie says, well, I want somebody to run my publishing company. And I was kind of ready to get out of the mailroom at BMI. I wanted to see what that was all about. Sure. So I went to work for Charlie Daniels, basically just trying to pitch the songs that he wasn't cutting. Hmm. And um, my office was at Sound 70 Productions, which is the one of the premier concert production companies in the Southeast. Hmm. And they, they did all of the shows at the Municipal Auditorium, and they did them in um, in Huntsville, Alabama, and, you know, just different towns around sure. this area. Um, so it was, a, it was management and concert production and a tiny little, you know, desk drawer publishing company that I was in charge of, mm. making next to nothing. Sure. But a little bit more than I was making at BMI. Yeah. So while I was up there, this was sort of the beginning. It was sort of the, the heyday of Southern rock. Mm. So there, you know, it, Joe Sullivan and Steve Greel, operated the management company and so they had uh the henry paul band and they had uh doby gray and they had uh wet willie some of these you know capricorn records southern rock acts yeah and i got to know all those guys and and just loved that music and i just you know loved all of the southern all of the allman brothers marshall tucker charlie daniels i was just in all the way and just that was that was my thing Mm-hmm. And uh, in the meantime, I did get a few of Charlie's songs recorded, but you know, none none became big hits. Yeah. You know, but I I got to learn about pitching songs and being selective, and and really, um, I, I was out there representing Charlie Daniels, mm-hmm. and so um, you know, when I think about uh, how good he was to me, it just it's just amazing what a yeah. What a shot he gave me, and and what a he he and Francis Preston really put me on a trajectory for my career. Wow, man. Well, rest in peace. Yeah. Very. Uh, you know, t- time time of recording this. It's just he's just passed away. That's I right. Guess it was what a month ago or two months ago. Now, about so. uh, yeah, about six weeks ago. Yeah. Um, just a just you know one of the most incredible humans I've ever met yeah. for sure. Yeah. Well, that that's amazing that he kind of helped you get your start doing that. So. Yeah. So that was publishing, and then you you ended up back at BMI. What what kind of made you want to uh, sort of jump back into that world? Well, you know, the cool thing about the Nashville publishing community is that we're all we all need each other. Yeah. Like I need I need to be doing business with you, mm-hmm. and hopefully you need to be doing business with me. Yeah. But if you're if you're if you have an act that you're producing, and I and I think that maybe it's a good idea that one of my writers writes with your act. Mm-hmm. So we we, de- we depend on each other. Sure. So you know, at at Sound Seventy, when I was running Charlie's Publishing Company, I became a member of this group of publishers that we all were having our writers co-write together. Mm. But Sound Seventy was not focused on publishing. They were not going to grow the company. We were not going to hire any more employees. We were not going to have staff writers and all of that. Sure. So, um, so. I began to look for a job. I worked for Charlie for three years. Mm-hmm. Then I went to work for uh, Charlie Feldman mm-hmm. at Screen Gems Music, which later became EMI Music. But Screen okay. Gems was a, a great publishing company here. Um, and I went to work for Charlie. And I worked there for two years, pitching songs, better staff of writers. Um, and I, I sort of went on. I, I wouldn't suggest this for any really young person 
this is this was my path and it happened to work out for me, mm-hmm. but I really wouldn't. Yeah. I, it, it, it's, it sounds a little irresponsible, kind of what I did, but every couple of years I would change jobs for a little bit more money to work with a better staff of writers. Mm-hmm. And so I went, after about two years with Screen Gems, I went to Chapel Music. They were the ASCAP Publisher of the Year just year after year. And so I, I, I worked with Rory Burke and Charlie Black and, and Rafe Van Hoy and Lang Martin. And all, it was like, wow, I was really – that was the company where I went, man, this is what it's like to have, like, racehorses yeah. walking in the office every day. And you've got to – you're representing them. And you yeah. better have your game face on. Sure. And it sure. was so much fun. Mm-hmm. So much fun. And so – I got a little bit more uh, notoriety in terms of just my ability to play songs and whatnot, and I got a job at Tree Publishing Company. Mm-hmm. And so this was the uh, mid-'80s by that time, you know, early to mid-'80s. And I only worked there for a couple of years. But while I was there, that that was by, you know, in, in those days, um, and, 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 and even t- today, you know, Sony Tree has the most uh, historic catalog of any publishing company, sure. Sony ATV yeah. in town. So back then, I was I got to work with Curly Putman and Harlan Howard and Bobby Braddock and Jamie O'Hara and all, you know these, just these Hall of Fame guys. Yeah, you know, yeah. W- w- b- before they were becoming the Hall of Fame, they were sure. becoming the Hall of Fame guys, but they weren't in yet. And sure. and anyway, it was just incredible learning experience being. Because they had so many writers. I mean, they had like a hundred writers. Yeah. So it was, it was, uh, and and a huge creative staff. You know, five or six creative people. Mm. So, um, in the and in those days, it was less about co-writing, and more about just writers who weren't artists coming in and writing, trying to write a better song than Harlan Howard that day. Sure. So the bar was really high. And you, you got to see how that played out and how that inspired the younger writers who were getting their first shot as songwriters. Yeah. Um, while I was there, uh, I became friends with Jamie O'Hara. Sort of my the the, the, the great thing that happened was um, there's uh, Jamie O'Hara wrote a song called um, "Grandpa Tell Me About the Good Old Days" for mm-hmm. the Judds. Yeah. So he he came in one day with a cassette and said, "I wrote this song, and what do you think?" And I said. I'm, I'm going to go find Brent Mayer and play it for him. Wow. You know, and, and so that later became one of their, you know, one of their big songs, yeah. which was so much fun working with guys like Jamie O'Hara. And, I mean, there's a guy who wrote the song 100% by himself. It was just yeah. like solitary, incredible sound. It sounds like it was written by one, one person with a solitary focus. Wow. But that was, a, that was sort of the fun highlight of my of my days there. But I got a call uh, to come back and, and um, to BMI and be a writer rep. So this was 86 to 95. Sure. I was a writer rep, which was sort of the heyday of country music. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was so much fun doing that yeah. and, uh, and being there at that time. Um, and, you know, it was, I, I started learning about Christian music during that stint at BMI. Um, and, uh, but really focused mainly, we had, a, we had uh, a gentleman named Joe Mascao who was really ran the, the Christian side of things. So sure. I, I wasn't really in that as much as I was the country side of things. Sure. Um, but, you know, it was the days of, you know, Brooks and Dunn and that whole era. 
yeah. you know, the, 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 the class of 89, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, back then there were like 40% of the, compared to today, about 40% of the voices on country radio were women. Hmm. And it was just so much more diverse, wow. you know, uh, in terms of, the, of, 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 of female voices, for sure. sure. Um, but just just great music and great bands and and the bar was the songwriting bar was really high, mm-hmm. really high. Yeah. Um, so I did that until '95 and I got a call to to come run MCA Music Publishing, which is which later became Universal sure. Publishing. So I went over there, and um, that was uh, I mean I've always wanted to run one of the big companies mm-hmm. in. I'll, I'll, at that at that point in my career at BMI, I wanted I, I thought wouldn't it be great to run one of the major companies Nashville office, mm-hmm. and then wouldn't it be great to to run the the creative office of BMI? I thought sometime later in my career I'd love to do that. So you kind of had those two things in your well, they were in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, they were in the, and I never wanted to start my own company. I never wanted to do anything like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I loved working for a team. I loved a. a uh, reporting to somebody. Sure. I mean, that, I had no problem with that. Mm-hmm. So I um, went to work for MCA Music Publishing. For, I was there for four years. You know, we were, and Gary Burr was the, the big sure. writer at that time. And, and we, you know, we bought some catalogs. We, uh, we were ASCAP Publisher of the Year, uh, one or two of those years. Mm-hmm. But just had a, had a great run uh, at MCA, and then they merged with Polygram. Yeah. And when they merged with Polygram, um, a few of us lost our jobs. So about three of us at uh, MCA lost our jobs, and about three people at Polygram lost their jobs, and that's when they hired a guy named Pat Higdon. Mm -hmm. They bought his catalog that he'd been building and hired him to run the the new off the merged office. Sure. And... um, so there I was, you know, kids, uh, you know, going into high school, I mean, in grade school, going, you know, it's like, sure. and no job. And so I thought, well, this is, you know, I've worked everywhere. I, I know all these people. Let me just, I'm just going to call Francis back and, yeah. or Roger Sovine back and see if I can get, go back to BMI. Sure. So BMI didn't need anybody. ASCAP didn't need anybody. And like songwriters were calling me saying, would you just pitch my songs? And I was like, I, I'm trying to get a job right now, so let me, sure. I'll get back to you, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I finally went to go see uh, my former employer, Donna Hilly, mm-hmm. at Sony Tree. Yeah. And I said, Donna, I'm just, you know, she didn't need anybody. And she said, Jody, look, all of your relationships and all of your skill set is working with songwriters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, God is opening this door for you. And and I know you don't want to do it because you don't want to have your own company, and you you know that's not a, that's not part of your plan. It's part of it's probably part of his plan for wow. you. Wow. So you have to take that seriously. That's all of your. You've got everything you need to have a company, and make it be successful. And I did not believe that. Wow. But because she said that, it it certainly planted a seed in my mind, and so I thought, okay. So I went home and I told my wife all this. And she was like, okay, I mean, that really makes sense. But I, I kind of, 
I mean, she was skeptical too. Sure. But I had no other options. Sure. I mean, I could sit around and drive around all day and not look for a job, but I had gone everywhere to look for a job. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'm going to go do this. Um, I took some money out of savings Mm -hmm. and I told my wife that I would, um, by the time this chunk of money has been spent, I will either have a joint venture and somebody else will be paying the bills for this company mm-hmm. or I'll get a job yeah, or, so, or I'll do something. I'll go to another line of work or something. Yeah. So um, this was kind of like your <laughs> last resort at the time. Like, this was my last yeah. resort. Yeah. So the, the way, you know, back, back 20 years ago, when you did this, you, you opened an office, you, hung a sign out on Music Row, and I did that. I mean, Mm. today you don't necessarily have to do that. Sure. But back then, that's the way I thought you had to do it. So I leased a small office uh, on 17th, put a sign out, um, still not with zero confidence that this was going to work. Sure. Okay. But the moment that my – I was signing a lease for a year on this office suite. And when when the pen left the paper from me signing that, something just clicked in me. Wow! It was like, it was really, it was it was it was either divine or it was probably just I don't know what it was. It was all of the above. Yeah. But I I said to myself, I'm going to make this work. Mm-hmm. This is going to work. Yeah. This is not maybe going to work. This is going to work. Yeah. And I never really looked back from there. And I had that company for seven years. Um. And and the funny thing is, just one thing after the other, just these, just by virtue of hanging the sign out there and having people call, um, I met uh, just incredible things happened during that seven year period. I, yeah. I, I hired an intern from Belmont. She was a senior, and I knew her from uh, a family at our church that we were going to. And she, so I hired her as an intern. Her name was uh, Catherine Blassingame. So she comes in, and she's helping me get organized. And she finally, after a few weeks, she said, you know, you're seeing a lot of these singers and, and writers that are coming in. She said, there's a kid that I go to school with that you ought to know. I mean, he's a better singer than any of these people that are coming in here. And I said, well, bring him in here. So that was Josh Turner. Mm-hmm. So Catherine brings in Josh Turner. He's saying he had like two nights before had written Long Black Train. Yeah. So he sits in my office. He plays Long Black Train. And I'm just like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this guy sang better than anybody I'd ever heard. Yeah. Perfect pitch. Wow. In- 100% written song by himself from from inspiration. He's yeah. deeply spiritual. Yeah. yeah. Um. And I thought, well, we can – I said, I don't know if you have any other songs in you, but, boy, I bet we can probably get you a record deal with the way – if you sound like that. Wow. So we worked with him um, for several months. And then, you know, all, all during this the, the first part of all of this, I bought a catalog with Sony uh, called King Lizard, and that was Liz Rose's catalog that she was a partner in. Mm-hmm. They had that company for a couple of years, and then they ran out of money. And I had met Liz. I can't remember how I exactly met, met Liz, but I, I hired her to pitch the catalog after I bought it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I wanted to sign a, a girl that wrote for, the, for that company sure. named Kim Patton Johnston. Kim McLean is, how she, is what she goes by now. Yeah. 
And so I started listening to those songs, and I saw that Liz, Liz's name was on some of these songs in the catalog. And I said, Liz, I didn't know you were a writer. She said, I, I didn't write those songs. Those writers just being nice to me. You know, I was just working. <laughs> I was just working with them like, you know, like publishers do with writers to help their songs get better. Yeah, like why don't you change this? Yeah, why don't you change it? Yeah. She's, yeah. So I, I said, oh, okay. So then I get deeper into the catalog, and like her name's on like a bunch of songs. And I said, Liz. And then I asked Kim. I said, Kim, did Liz really write this stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, totally. Yes, she, wow. she's a writer. Wow. So I said, Liz, this was uh, several months had passed, and I said, I don't really need you to pitch the catalog anymore, but I want to—I'll pay you twice as much to write. And she and she was like, I I don't want to write. I, I'm a publisher. I'm much more comfortable there. That's a more uh, steady stream. Of, of income for me. Sure. She had kids. And I said, I, I don't, well, I don't need you to pitch this catalog. So you either, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. why don't you just try this, yeah. you know, for a year, try it for a year. So she comes in and pretty quickly, you know, she, she becomes this entity yeah. and people wanted to write with her and Kim. Artists wanted to write with her and Kim. And then Liz on her own would just, Lo- she just loved writing with young, young artists that nobody wanted to pay any attention to. Sure. I mean, there was just a stream of these kids coming through the office, and I finally said, "You know, uh, ha- we're not really getting your songs cut when you're writing them with these kids." You know, and she said, "You know," she said, "Well, this is kind of what I want to do," and I said, "Okay, hmm. that's cool." You know, I wasn't paying her hardly anything. Sure. So one of the kids that she started writing with was Taylor Swift. Just one of the many. Yeah. And, but she really latched on to Taylor. Mm. And they had a thing, and I couldn't see it. I was, uh, I, Taylor was, uh, was taking up more and more of Liz's time. And the songs were, were okay, but there were no teenagers on any radio, yeah. any format, really. Yeah. You know, it was all, and the, the, Taylor was like 15 mm. then. So we loved it when Taylor would come to the office like twice a week to write. You know, she'd get out of school, she'd come in, either her mom or dad would sit there in our little lobby and wait for him to get finished. They'd write till about seven at night. They'd, they'd come in and play me songs. And I, you know, and I would, I was always, I think, encouraging, but I still didn't get it. And I thought, and she had a development deal at RCA that had just, she'd just been let go from her development deal at RCA. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, Okay, she doesn't have her development deal at RCA anymore. And, you know, I said, Liz, I don't know. You know, you you should really think about this. And she said, we're about to turn a corner. I can just feel it. Mm -hmm. And Liz was exactly right. Uh, Probably a week or two later, they turned in a song called uh, Come In With The Rain Mm -hmm. that I thought, well, this is really good. I said, Taylor could do this, but it it felt a little mature for me. So I thought, you know, maybe Faith... Hill could do this. Sure. But I thought, hey, it's a great song. And then the next song they, they came in with was that song, Tim McGraw. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this sounds just like Taylor Swift. This sounds exactly like what a 15-year-old, 16-year-old kid would say. Yeah. The way they would say it. Yeah. And I thought, okay, you know. And then I began, then I began to see it. Then I, I would, I, I sort of looked at the other songs that I didn't get at first, and I was, begin, I was beginning to get it. Next thing you know, she's signed by Scott Borchetta. Um, along that, 
during that time, I signed a girl named Stephanie Chapman. Uh, really believed in, still do, believe in her as a uh, writer and an, and an artist. Yeah. Um, and I uh, didn't realize it at the time, but I got her her husband, Nathan, along for the ride. He was like a budding demo producer, you know? <laughs> yeah. And um, his parents uh, are Steve and Annie Chapman, who who are artists that were at the forefront of the whole contemporary Christian yeah. music scene. Yeah. I mean, you know, just at, from the very beginning. So Nathan grew up playing in their band on the road and stuff like that when he was a kid. Wow. Um, I later learned all that. But I, I met Nathan immediately... Just love Nathan. I mean, Nathan and I became fast friends. Sure. And 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 he was not writing songs. He was just, and I gave him this, we had a little shack in the back of our office. It was like a one-car garage. <laughs> and he converted it into a studio, and he started doing all my demos back there. So our writers would write a song. I'd call up Nathan, give him the work tape, and he'd go back there and build the track. Yeah. So when Liz and Taylor started uh, really getting on a roll, he would he would just go back there and demo every single song, hmm. like the day they wrote it. Then by by the end of the day, the next day the track was done, yeah. and Taylor would go back in and sing it, and Nathan would do the harmonies and play all the guitar, do all that. Yeah. So, so, then she gets signed by Scott Borchetta. They hired they called another producer, uh, a really a great producer to sure. to cut sides on her, and Taylor didn't didn't like it as well as what Nathan had been doing Mm -hmm. and convinced Scott Borchetta to let Nathan do the project. Yeah. So he did. Yeah. I mean, this was so speculative. Yeah. I mean, Taylor Swift was not Taylor Swift. Sure. In these days at all. Um, and so, you know, I guess just the, 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 the end of that story is the rest is history. Right. It just kept building and building and building. But the lessons I learned from, I learned a lot from Catherine Blassingame. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot, I still do to this day, from Liz Rose. Yeah. I've learned so much from Taylor Swift mm-hmm. and watching her career and watching how she, how she, is, she knows who her audience is and who she is, probably as good as any artist as I've, that I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and then Nathan Chapman. I've just, I've watched, I've just watched the, what, what that work ethic and that, talent can do and you know late in you know years later he started writing songs and then that turned into a, a great career for him too yeah, yeah so um that that was all great you know one, one thing i i've got i'm sitting here talking about the people who who've inspired me yeah um yeah. uh when i was when i was working in the mail room i'm gonna go back for just a second when sure. i was working in the mail room at bmi um i walked out of the mail room one day and there was this cute blonde girl behind the at the receptionist desk and I said you know who are you you know <laughs> and uh uh her name was Karen and and uh, we became just great friends we were the same age and and uh uh she had dated uh David Preston in high school and I I'd always heard of her but I never met her mm-hmm. in high school and so all of a sudden we're kind of thrown in there together sure. we become uh Great friends, and 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 uh, basically, a couple of years after that, got married. We've been married for forty-two years, mm-hmm. um, and met there at BMI. And when I talk about the people who've inspired me and who have 
been every step of the way with me in my career. All these moves I've made, it's her. Yeah. And she's she's always said, go do that or no, no we ought, we ought to leave that alone or whatever. She she'll let me go meander through the process, but sure. uh, no greater guide that I've had in my career than her. Yeah, for well, sure. Congratulations. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. Forty two years. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then when, when, um, so, at the, so Sony, I get a call from Sony one day mm-hmm. and Sony says, we're getting rid of all of our joint ventures. Hmm. So they're pulling all the funding from my company. Yeah. And we were just now, you know, when you have an independent company, you're, you're digging a hole with money. Sure. Hoping to fill it back up. And then you, you either make money when your company really has enough critical mass to, and income yeah. to sustain itself, mm-hmm. or you sell it and do a go forward with your buyer. Yeah, and so can we can we stop there real yeah. quick? Just no listener left behind. I, I think you know these are really powerful concepts and would would be awesome just to really unpack that. Can you yeah. maybe explain a little bit more? Like, okay, what, what's a joint venture, and then what's a you know how, how does somebody go about selling a catalog, and what what does it go forward? Some of those terms that you yeah. just mentioned. Yeah. Well, uh, so my, for instance, the company I have right now is a joint venture with Warner Chapel. Warner Chapel pays for all of my writer advances, demo costs, recording costs, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my overhead, my office, my employees, um, my travel, all of that stuff, I is is out of sure. my pocket. Yeah. So it, it's a true joint venture. The the larger part of the the Money outlay is really Warner Chapel because those advances can can get to be sizable. Sure, but if you if you have eight or nine writers, even if they're small amounts of money, it turns out to be a big amount of money. Yeah, yeah. So you you have to have enough s- songs out there earning income to pay down all that debt mm-hmm. that you owe your joint venture partner. And if you don't, what you can do is in the marketplace you can sell your catalog for a multiple of its annual earnings. Let's say it's a it's a it's a eight to fifteen multiple depending on the hits in there. Yeah. And and the company buys your catalog and you so you get your payday and and they say we'll go forward with you. Like we'll continue to pay your writer advances. And these days they don't pay overhead. Yeah. The the for your employees and yeah. your office and all that. Yeah. So that's that's kind of that concept. <clears throat> it's a and and the the great thing is you have a you have a partner. Uh, Sony was a great partner, and Warner Chapel is an incredible partner for me right now because you get creative help, you get administ they, they do all your administration, they're paying your writer bills. Yeah, you know it's it's just a great way to go. Yeah. So if somebody's wanting to go into the publishing business and you know start a publishing company. Whether or not it's a good or a bad time to do that right now, we we could we could talk a little bit about that. But they they pretty much have to know that those are the two ways that you can kind of make money is is either in the catalog sale or like you said, you hit critical mass and the the, the royalties that are coming in are kind of sustaining you. That's right. And so I've always you know my dad kind of raised me to like uh, it's it's okay you know don't try not to spend spend as little of your own money as you can. Yeah. In other words, it's okay to own 50%. Yeah. Don't feel like you've got to own 100% of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Find a partner, you do the sweat equity, mm-hmm. and let somebody else put up the money. And so, like, when I started my publishing company the first time, to get that little amount of money out of savings was a big deal to me. Sure. It, it felt like 10 times that amount yeah. that I took out. Yeah. Uh, mainly just because that's how I came up. But, sure. Um, yeah, so... so uh, Sony 
calls and says we're getting rid of all of our joint ventures. And this was, this was sort of the advent of um, digital music and uh, sales were dipping, you know, beginning to dip. And so, you know, I, I get why they did that. Um, you know, it used to be you could have 25 years ago, you know, you could have an album cut on a gold or platinum album and it would pay for two developing writers yeah. at your publishing company. Yeah. So those, you know, it, we, we began moving towards a singles-driven type business. Mm-hmm. So Sony pulls their funding and I thought, well, I've got to either go find a partner or I can sell the company. And right about that time, I got a call from BMI again saying, would you like to come back and run the creative office at BMI? And I was like, this is in the back of your head right there. And the I was, time. <laughs> and, and at this time I was really having fun being a publisher too. Yeah. But I had not hit critical mass. Taylor Swift had her record deal and she was releasing records, but she had not become Taylor Swift yet. Sure. Um, so I, uh, I decided to take the job at BMI. My kids were in, still in school. I had not had a job in seven years, yeah. uh, like an income-paying job. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're living more frugally. Sure. You know, you're not taking nice, nice, really super nice trips and stuff like that. You're just kind of building your business. Sure. And, um, but we were raising kids, so it was time to be home and time to be doing all that. It was, I yeah. mean, we weren't suffering by any means, but yeah. um, it just became clear that, that I should probably take this job. And, and this is, you know, God's telling me, you've always kind of wanted to do this. They're giving you your shot. Go, go do it. Yeah. yeah. So I did. And, and my, I've got two boys, uh, Ed and Driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, Driver's the oldest. Uh, Ed's four years younger. And at that time, Ed was um, still in high school, and Driver was uh, in college, and actually just getting out of college. And um, neither one of them really, they, they had worked for me in the past, but, but neither one of them wanted to take on the responsibility of a publishing company. So I put sure. the company up for sale. Mm-hmm. And this was, when I finally put it up for sale, Taylor was becoming Taylor, so my my catalog had had more value sure, than normal. Sure. And uh, I ended up selling the cat. I took the job at BMI in 2006. Mm. Uh, and by 2008, I had sold the catalog to Olay, mm. which is a Canadian publisher now called Anthem. Yeah. And so they really wanted a t- sort of a tent pole catalog to build their operation around. Sure. So they, they bought my catalog. Yeah. And um, so I did that. I took the job at BMI. And um, I felt like, you know, it's like walking back back home, yeah. you know. I, I felt yeah. completely at ease there, always have, mm. um, and uh, just had a great, fun run this, the last 14 years. Yeah. And then, then, then as a lot of those jobs go, um, about halfway into that job, about seven or eight years into it, I wasn't meeting with songwriters as much and didn't have really anything to do with actual music. Mm. Um, because the job, if you're, if you have that role, you're, it's more administrative than it is creative. Mm. So I, I've never considered myself a great administrative person yeah. at all. Sure. Um, but I learned 
that. I learned a whole lot about business that I yeah. didn't know before. But my heart has always been with working with songwriters and talking mm-hmm. with them about their songs and connecting the dots and watching them succeed like that. Yeah. So, um, I, 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 you know, I sort of pl- planned an exit, but it just took a lot longer sure. to get there. Sure. Um, and why and did it I'm, take longer? I'm glad it did. Well, I think BMI was was uh, happy with me being there. I know my wife was happy with me sure. being there. She she wasn't all crazy about me just you know jumping fr- sure. from that job to go start do the speculative thing again. Yeah. But I was at a different place in my life and a different place in my career, mm. and so I wanted I wasn't doing what I wanted to do, mm. and uh, I can't tell you. I can't imagine what this community would be like without the music community, without BMI in Nashville. Just yeah. incredible. Yeah. Um, I always said, you know, we're just we're just trying to keep that that ideal alive that Frances Preston created mm. when she opened the office here, mm. and it was carried on by a lot of great people before me. And so, can you tell us what that is? What what is that <coughs> ideal? Well, she she knew how to properly appreciate songwriters. I mean, she made them feel like they were the most important people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the artist was important, but this guy over here who wrote that song may be more important. That was her whole thing. And she knew how to talk to a writer and make them feel that. Sure. And, I mean, anybody who worked at BMI for Francis watched that unfold daily, mm-hmm. no, matter who the, no matter who the writer was. I mean, Francis, uh, my, my view of Francis is that she didn't know a whole hell of a lot about music, but boy, she could pick people. Mm. She, she, would pick, she would pick somebody just based upon their character and sort of their, she just had a feel for them, and then we would watch them just p- succeed, yeah. you know, in a, in a huge way. Yeah. Um, so she, she, just, she just had great intuition, so we got to all see that. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, yeah, so obviously, you know, the rest the rest is history, as as we said earlier. And you're now running Jody Williams songs. Can mm-hmm. you tell us what 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 jumping from that you know secure position at BMI to now you're you're working back with writers again? What what has that been like? Well, it's just it's just the joy of my life. I mean, I just absolutely love walking into the office and working with Nina, figuring out who should write with who. Then about 3 o'clock every afternoon, writers are getting out of their rights and they're emailing the work tapes in. And, I mean, it's just a thrill. Yeah. I mean, our, you, know, you know this. It's like your life and the trajectory of your company can change on any given day mm-hmm. based upon what comes through yeah, one song. on the work. T- one song yeah. and it's, you know, watch out. Yeah. And... And then, you know, and, and the other cool thing about it, when, you're, when you have your head down and you're really working hard at this, it's these songs that you never paid much attention to that sort of work for you, too. Hmm. You know, hmm. you, I, I'm very, at this point in my life, I'm so picky sure. about songs. I mean, I'm so ultra picky about yeah. songs. Yeah. So I've, I've got to learn to <laughs> kind of let it go a little bit and, and let, let some of these other songs, uh, you know, not be so critical of them. I have to, sure. I have to catch myself because of that. Yeah. Um, so, so leaving BMI and coming back into this, um, I've got a great partner, uh, Ben Ben Vaughn, who's a great friend of mine at Warner, who runs Warner Chapel here. He he wanted to do this with me, and I'm so glad he did. They're a great partner. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, we're coming, we're coming out of this bro country er, era of, of music and, and things are, things are changing yeah. on the musical landscape. Yeah. So we've, we're, we've come out of bro country and we're coming into a, another phase of music where the, where the, there's, I think a little bit more tension on lyric, a little bit more tension on traditional, um, a lot more tension on women. I mean, the doors yeah. have really opened. Well, yeah, we, but we, we, we just haven't. had we just had um, Zach Kale on here a minute uh, ago, and we were talking about Gabby Barrett. I mean, that's yeah, the man. longest running number one in, that oh, I can remember. Crazy. So it's, yeah, it's it's a different landscape. And you hinted that earlier that back in the nineties, what did you, or the, the the late eighties, you said it was like forty percent women on yeah. country radio. Yeah. Do you see that happening again, or what? What are your? I thoughts think on it that? needs to be better, but we're. We're headed in like compared to two years ago. Yeah, we're headed in the right direction. Yeah. So if we can if we can just stay on this trajectory, mm-hmm. we'll be fine. Yeah, we'll get there. But there are so many. I mean, you know this. I mean, people still they don't. No songwriter or artist ever did this for money. Hmm. You know, they do it because this they have to do it. Yeah. And they still move to Nashville, with their dreams, and and uh, I think in the past fifteen years or so. We've done. We haven't done a great job of encouraging that great song writing. Mm-hmm. I think we've done a lot of throwing professional writers in with writer artists who are really better artists than they are writers. Sure. And we've, in in a sense, lowered the bar because of that. Now that doesn't mean there's not hit music out there. There is hit music out there, but I think we're seeing a little bit more attention paid to the quality of the song. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've, you know, you know, back, way back when the music industry started in Nashville, you know, no, hardly any of the singers were writers. I right. mean, the, the, you know, they just, the, their producers and their record companies would just say, no, your stuff isn't very good. You're going to sing, you know, yeah. Bobby Braddock's song. So where, where did that start to shift? I mean, you've, you've, you've watched that. I think it, I think it was always going that way. You know, and and then, but then, but then you have you have artists that really could write. I mean, like Alan Jackson. Alan Jackson's like a great songwriter. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Forget forget that he ever sang a note. He's a great songwriter. Mm-hmm. So you, you, we had more people because the because music became more popular fifties and sixties. Everybody thought that they could do that. When the Beatles came along, everybody thought that they could do that. Yeah. That's that's me and. Yeah. A zillion other people. That's our era. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then people got better at it. Mm-hmm. And then, then you have people like Taylor Swift who can really write yeah. at, at an early age. Yeah. So, the, so we've always been headed that way. But I think, you know, the, the, the man at the top of the corporation at the music company would always say, let's just, I'd rather bet on, you know, the Brill building or... Acuff Rose to get those songs to cut on you. Sure, you know they, um, just, they just felt like historically you have this a better shot. Why, why try to shake it up? Yeah. So, so, um, and then you know, then you, then we, we also see artists who aren't really great writers become great writers. Yeah. Then you see guys like Red Akins, who was a who was a writer artist, a really good writer when he was young, mm-hmm. uh, had a had a a good but short artist career on the radio mm-hmm. become one of the greatest writers in Nashville. Yeah. So yeah. they come in all forms. But all of that to say, 
I think everybody's ratcheting up a little bit. Yeah. Right now, and that's exciting to me. Yeah, the quality is the quality is very high. I think that's, yeah. you know, for for people who are maybe on the outside considering a career in music, I think just the bar is so incredibly high. And as Jody's talking about, it's it's getting higher by the day. So. Yeah you're going to have to write a lot of songs to get to that hit, you know, maybe probably even more now than you, than you, than you ever did before. That's right. No, it's, it's true. It's, it's uh, watching Liz Rose. She wrote, you know, three or 400 songs a year. That's, you want to know, you want, you want to know one of the, <laughs> one of the reasons why Liz Rose is so successful is that she's prolific. It's, 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 it's she's prolific. And she's not afraid to work. She's not afraid to outwork everybody on the street, you yeah. know? Yeah, that's more than a lot of writers will write in their lifetime yeah. that she does in one year. That's, yeah. that's amazing. So um, what did you learn? I want to kind of fast forward to now. What, what did you learn at BMI that sort of translates to what you do now with, with Jody Williams' songs? Well, I think it's, it's all relationship-based. I mean, the, the, it's, it goes back to kind of what we learned from Francis. Mm-hmm. Um, you never know, like— you never know who you're going to be doing business with next. Mm-hmm. Uh, you never know what writer is going to be let go from his deal, who's going to walk into your office, and wa- you'll be looking for a deal, and you want to sign him. You just sure. never know. So in, in this community, um, if you get sideways with somebody, it's best that you work it out really quick because six weeks later, that person's going to come back around, or you're going to want to do have a piece of business that only that person can do with you. Yeah. So I love that whole kind of no matter what, let's all get along and let's all do a lot of business together. Yeah. And so um, at BMI, it, there's so much volume. I mean, at BMI, you walk in and there's emails and there's texts and the phone's ringing off the hook mm-hmm. and you're taking care of, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of writers, yeah. you know, who, who, if they have a question that day, you, you have to be leaning on yes. When you work at a PRO, mm. you have to, you're, it's a, it's like the, the electric company. Yeah. I mean, you have to pick up, you can't not answer your phone. Yeah. <laughs> you have to return the email. You have to answer somebody's question. You have to give them help the, to the best of your ability. Mm. And so you learn how to manage all that at BMI. So you, you learn how to manage volume. And I, I'm glad to not have that volume in my life now. I've got my, I've got sort of my, more of my bandwidth back to pour into creative. Sure. Which is fun for me. But I, I learned how to take care of people. Hmm. I learned how to take care of people, period. Yep. Yep. Uh, if you, you won't last long at a PRO if you don't do that. Sure. Well, that's that's good. So, before we jump into our lightning round and we kind of wrap up for today, I I, I want to hear: Is there anything that you're you're working on with your company, particular writers, particular projects, anything that you you'd like to share? Um, you know, I think it's so early on right now. Um, yeah, you guys started just for people who are listening. This is six months ago, right? We we, we started March first, which was kind of the start date of the pandemic. Yeah, you know, that's a whole nother. <laughs> crazy uh, part of the story. But um, no, the five writers that I have, Nathan Chapman is is working with probably four or five different artists. Um, and that's really, that's his business, yeah. you know, more than it's my business because those artists are not my 
writers. Sure. And so he's, but but we he's writing with them, so it becomes it becomes our business. Sure. So he's very busy doing that. Jeremy Spillman is, uh, you know, he just had uh, uh, an Eric Church single this summer. Mm-hmm. I mean. Um, Greg Bates is working with this group called Sutherland that are, that's Riverhouse, Sony Music. Their single was released two weeks ago. Awesome. That's we're really excited about. That. I'm really excited about Greg and Sutherland. Hmm. Uh, right this second. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, uh, Pat McLaughlin is writing with everybody under the sun hmm. uh, from all through the Americana genre into into country. Um, uh, Ashley McBride, uh, the the. The thing I'm, I'm most excited about probably that, that comes to mind right now is watching her uh, come into our office about three days a week wanting to write songs and her not hold them for herself. She wants to get cuts on other people, mm-hmm. and she wants to be put in better writer's rooms. And, of course, everybody wants to write with her, so that's not hard to do. Sure, sure. But what's what's hard to do is fi- to find an artist that's as successful as she is and as, as she's becoming – and we've had this pandemic where she can't go on the road, so she's poured her energy into writing songs. So now we've got this wonderful little catalog of songs from yeah. the last six months yeah. that we would have probably never had, or we would have had a lot fewer songs. Sure, yeah. So she's she's you know she, she's just this she's it's just a pleasant surprise. She works so hard and she's so great, mm. um, and she she wants to see. She wants to write hits for other people. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. So it's it's this whole time has been so interesting. And like you said, we could we could go off on a whole tangent about the pandemic and what what it's done for the music business. But um, yeah, you know, for for publishers, that's kind of what I've been hearing is you know, well, this is the time that people have to write songs now. So yeah, where they maybe were touring three hundred exactly. shows a year before. But are you ready to jump in the lightning round? Sure. Do you play any instruments? I do. What instruments? I play primarily guitar, but I play I played dobro in a bluegrass band years ago, so I still dabble in that. Awesome. I play a little keyboard. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, favorite song you wish you published? Wow. Favorite song I wish I published? Probably That's the Way Love Goes by Merle Haggard. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that Merle wrote that, though. I think that was that may have been another writer or he co-wrote it with somebody, but I absolutely love that song. Okay. That's a good answer. Are you a morning person or a night person? Um, I'm a morning person. For sure. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. What's a song that you loved when you were growing up? Um, I would say, uh, uh, you know, Ticket to Ride by the Beatles. Hmm. I would also say um, most any Leonard Skinner song, yeah. to be honest with you. I mean, yeah. all the Southern rock stuff is so special to me. Um, uh, yeah. That's awesome. There you go. And lastly, your favorite vegetable. My favorite vegetable. (laughs) Seth, no wonder you get paid the big bucks coming up with a question like that. Uh, Asparagus. All right. There you go. We we have a lot of that in my house. Okay. My girls actually love it. We've got a three-year-old and a six-year-old. Oh, man. They love love salmon and asparagus, so I'm, I'm glad they're... On a healthy track. That's cool. (laughs) Hey, Jody, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Is there anything that you'd like to kind of leave with people before we sign off and jump into our deep dive, which is going to be all about advice specifically for songwriters? Again, people can check that out at madeitmusic.com. But before we do that, is there anything that you'd like to leave people with? Um, Just, you know, all I can say is as as you meander through your career, 
you're going to circle back to that person that, that that maybe said no to you that you that you didn't feel should have said no to you. Mm-hmm. They're always going to be there to circle back around to when you become uh, more of an entity at, at at what you do in music. So just don't don't take all that stuff to heart because you know it can it can manifest itself into something positive down the road. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. So good. Jody, thank you so much for being on the Made It Music podcast. Yeah. Enjoyed all, it. All the links for, for Jody Williams, uh, Jody Williams Publishing Company are going to be in the show notes as well as social media and all of that good stuff. So thanks again. Yeah. My pleasure. <laughs>